Uh, this is the final installment in a miniature series on the treasure principle. Uh, this principle is extracted from Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. We've read that often. Notice the definition. The treasure principle is we can't take it with us, but we can send it on ahead. There are six components to this treasure principle, and we have addressed four of them. One, God owns every treasure, and we are His investment managers. Component two, our heart is where we invest God's treasure. Component three, heaven and not earth is our actual home. Component four, we're not supposed to live for the dot but for the line, the dot representing our time on this earth, the line extending from the dot going off the page, it never ends, representing our life after this life in heaven. This morning we're going to finish this mini-series and examine treasure principles numbers 5 and 6. Part 5, component 5, giving is the antidote to materialism. Giving is the antidote to materialism. The word antidote means something that counteracts something else. Something that cancels out something else. If someone has a poisonous snake bite, then that person receives an antidote called antivenom. And that antivenom antidote counteracts and cancels out the effects of that snake poison. Giving is an antidote that counteracts and cancels out materialism. Acts 20, verse 35. Notice, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Some of us have red letter edition Bibles, and that last phrase is printed in red. Words in the biblical text that are printed in red are words Jesus actually spoke and that are recorded. This particular statement from Jesus isn't found in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this is the only direct quotation from Jesus that is mentioned outside those four Gospels. So it's important. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Blessed means fortunate and happiness. Jesus said that someone that gives derives more happiness from his giving than the happiness he gets from receiving. Someone said there are two categories of people, givers and takers. If that is so, then, according to Jesus, givers are happier. This is an extremely materialistic society. Materialism is this preoccupation with consuming money and consuming material possessions. So essentially, materialism is receiving to an extreme degree. Remember the classic definition on materialism. Materialism is buying things we don't need with money we don't have in order to impress people we don't actually like. Um, That's materialism. Materialism at its core is based on the erroneous idea that receiving something... And getting more things brings someone more happiness. The fact is dollars and cents do not bring the satisfaction to someone that most people think it does. Listen to these quotations from some extremely rich people from the past. A.W.H. Vanderbilt. 
quote, the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. Well, I wouldn't know, but uh, he said so. Um, John Jacob Astor died in 1848 and had the modern equivalent of $560 million. He said, I am the most miserable man on earth. John D. Rockefeller, we mentioned him in a recent sermon, the richest man in modern times, said, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Andrew Carnegie said, millionaires seldom smile. Henry Ford said, I was happier when I was doing a mechanic's job. I might interject a footnote, not to discourage Ford owners, but doing some research, I learned that Henry Ford was a racist and a vicious anti-Semite. Adolf Hitler admired him so much, he had a life-size portrait of Henry Ford in his Munich office. He said, quote, I regard Henry Ford as my inspiration, and he even mentioned Ford in his hateful book called Mein Kampf. Uh, you can still buy a Ford, it's okay. He's dead, but I'm just saying that's not a good start there, anyway. Someone said there are three things money cannot buy, health, heaven, and happiness. The Chicago Tribune carried the account of Buddy Post as, quote, proof that money can't buy happiness. In 1988, Mr. Post won $16.2 million in the Pennsylvania Lottery. But since then, things haven't gone so good. He has been convicted of assault. Wife number six, count them, six, left him. His brother was convicted of attempting to murder him, and his landlord successfully sued him for one-third of the jackpot. Money didn't change me, insists Post, a 58-year-old former carnival worker and cook, but it changed the people around me that I thought cared about me, but they only cared about the money. Post tried to auction off 17 future payments valued at almost $5 million. He tried to auction them off in order to pay off taxes, legal fees, and numerous failed business ventures. He then planned to spend his life as an ex-winner pursuing lawsuits he had filed against police, judges, and attorneys who he claimed all conspired to take his lottery money. Post said, money draws flies. And it does. The lesson is that being poor is a problem, but being rich is not necessarily the solution. If materialism is a desire to receive and receive and receive and receive to an excess, an extreme, and accumulate more and more money and material possessions, then the only antidote and solution to that kind of excess is giving. Jesus said that giving brings more happiness. Not getting more, giving more brings happiness. Remember the Charles Dickens classic Christmas story called A Christmas Carol? At the beginning of that story, Ebenezer Scrooge was rich and miserable. He was caustic and complaining and full of intense greed. He then had three encounters with three different spirits on Christmas Day. 
the successive ghosts from Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. And then after those encounters, Scrooge was given a second chance at life. Remember that after his transformation, Scrooge walked through the streets of London, and in his excitement and cheerfulness, he started passing out money to those in need. This was the same man that just 24 hours earlier couldn't stomach the concept of being charitable. But then after the Christmas ghost, he found incredible happiness and satisfaction in doing just that. Through supernatural intervention, Scrooge was able to see his past, his present, and his still changeable future. And that enabled him to better understand the biblical truism that it is better to give than to receive. Those that know me understand that giving is the one subject I neglect most from this pulpit. I don't talk about it often. One primary reason I dislike addressing giving is because of how televangelists and Christian celebrities and other pastors have misused this subject to enrich themselves and or their ministries. And that is unacceptable to me. I find that offensive. Robert Morris pastors a mega, mega non-denominational charismatic congregation called Gateway Church in South Lake, Texas near Fort Worth. That name might sound familiar because there's a popular uh, commercial Christian record label called Gateway Worship that originated from that church. Gateway averages some 36,000 in attendance. FYI, I have zero interest in attending a church that size. Uh, I am apprehensive about most megachurches. Not all of them. There are some excellent megachurches. But uh, most of them I find undesirable. The famous 19th century London preacher Charles Spurgeon said, What is right is not always popular. And what is popular is not always right. And that characterizes most megachurches. Robert Morris preaches on tithing, and he does so often. Tithing is a common subject in some evangelical churches, except not here, and I will explain that in a moment. The basic giving unit in the Old Testament was a tithe, and tithe meant 10%, one-tenth of something, or 10%. Don't miss this. That word tithe wasn't a religious word per se. It was a mathematical word. It was a word that just meant one-tenth or ten percent of something. Now, some people have the impression that tithe is just a religious word and that if we put something into the offering plate, no matter the percentage of that amount or the size of that amount, if we just put something into the plate, then that something is considered a tithe. Not necessarily. If the amount we put into the offering plate or the offering box in the lobby, if that amount represents exactly 10% of someone's profit or income, then that's considered a tithe. If that amount is less than 10%, then it's not a tithe. If that amount is more than 10%, then it is a tithe plus some. But tithing represents someone giving God 10% of profit or income. 
Some congregations and denominations that teach strict legalistic tithing believe it is disobedience and a sin to give God less than 10%. Meaning giving God 8%, although that might be a sizable amount, giving God 9% is considered a sin because it's not 10%. It must be a strict 10% to be acceptable to God. Some people even, I have heard treasures have told me this, I've not seen it, but I've heard this. Some people even tithe down to the exact penny, $276.23. Now that's nuts. That's just nuts. Can't you even round it up for God? I mean, come on. (laughs) Robert Morris is a proponent of strict tithing. In a recent sermon, he said that Christians that don't tithe are thieves are thieves. He bases that assessment on a misunderstanding of a passage from Malachi 3 verses 8 through 10. I have an entire sermon addressing that text and how it is so often misunderstood. He then said that Christians that don't tithe open themselves up to demons and demon possession. He said that. Christians that do not tithe meaning that do not contribute 10%, open themselves up to demon possession. I read, from a statistical perspective, there are just 4% of evangelicals that actually do tithe. That's a lot of demon possession. (laughs) People, that just isn't true. And telling a congregation that is unbiblical manipulation and spiritual abuse. That is just wrong. There's an evangelist named Jesse DePlantis. Jesse's from New Orleans. Jesse is a Pentecostal and part of the positive confession movement. So he preaches a prosperity gospel that God wants to bless us in riches, contingent on our faith in him to do that. He's popular. He has 159,000 subscribers to his podcast. His evangelistic organization owns three private jets. But in 2018, he started asking people in his podcast and on YouTube and television and in his meetings, he started asking donors to contribute to his organization so he could purchase a $54 million jet called the Dawson Falcon 7X. That is a nice plane. Jesse said he needed that plane. He just had to have that plane because he said commercial jets are full of demons. After coming home on Southwest Airlines that just canceled 1,800 flights, I almost believe that. (laughs) Jesse DePlantis now argues that if more Christians would give more, then that giving action on our part would speed up Jesus' return. Meaning Jesus would return sooner if, if more of us would just give more. And the implication is especially give to his, quote, evangelistic association. People, that is ridiculous. It's because of con men like these that I tend to avoid the subject of giving. I don't want to be identified with those religious hucksters. I don't want to be misrepresented as a money-grabbing preacher. I hate manipulation. I hate coercion. So other than in our Essentials to Discipleship course, 
I haven't addressed this subject from this pulpit in 51 months. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Because in my ambition not to be miscategorized, and in neglecting this subject, and not addressing this, I might have deprived someone of the information he needs to find more happiness. Because Jesus said it is more blessed or happier to give than to receive. Our church is part of the Southern Baptist Convention. In an average Southern Baptist congregation, just 12% of the membership contribute 80% of the monies. And 50% of them give nothing at all. But probably the saddest statistic is 80% of each dollar comes from members over age 55. The reason that condition exists is because we are not teaching this practice of giving to the emerging generations of Christians. And I'm guilty of that. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly. Not grudgingly means don't give and then afterwards begrudge that we gave. Now, this message is not just theoretical spiritual rhetoric. This is something I have practiced consistently since childhood. The verse reads, not grudgingly or of necessity. Meaning don't give just because we feel we have to give. If you ever sit in a service here and feel pressure from me to give, then please don't give. Don't give. If you feel manipulated, coerced, pressured to give, don't give. Because if you give, then you're giving out of necessity. No, give because you have a sincere desire to give. Notice, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul wants us to be cheerful givers. This word cheerful in the original Greek language is hilaros, from which we get our English word hilarious. Hilarious means boisterously gay, noisy, and exuberantly gaiety. The statement is made that God loves someone that is able to give in a hilarious, exuberant sense. It is most unfortunate that most congregates don't get super excited about giving. Most of us have seen the wave at a ball game. Some congregants practice the wave as the offering paid is passed. It gets closer to them. It's time to do the wave. And keep it moving. Go on down. Notice again the first phrase of 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. That particular statement means that the precise percentage or precise amount someone gives is to be a personal decision. It is up to the individual himself to determine just how much he gives. Understand, as a pastor, a spiritual shepherd, it is my business to tell you God expects you to give. It is though none of my business to tell you how much to give. That is a decision between you and God. That's the reason I have no access to our church's contribution records. 
I know how much the Webb household contributes on a consistent basis, but I do not know, and I do not want to know, what anyone else gives. And our treasurer, Derek Rickford, wouldn't tell me if I did want to know, so that's a good safeguard. Giving is a personal decision. And the reason for this miniature series is not to raise monies. It is not to increase our income. People notice the worship folder. It is more than apparent. God has blessed our church in a financial sense. This church has never experienced this kind of success. The reason for this four-part series is to encourage us to become more God-like because God, above all else, is a giver and we are never more like God than when we give. Component six. God blesses us not to just raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. Don't misunderstand that. God sometimes does bless us, a raise, a promotion, an inheritance, a sale of a house, more than we, the asking price, all kinds of things that God can do to bless us. And sometimes it is to raise our standard of living. But he also blesses us in order to raise our standard of giving. Luke 12, verse 48. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. The point is that if God blesses us with more, then he expects us to be more of a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. Don't forget that principle. We are blessed to be a blessing. In this New Testament age, a Christian can, on a voluntary basis, contribute 10% of his income or profit from the sale of something, for example. 10%, he can contribute that to the church and consider it a tithe because in a strict mathematical sense, it is a tithe. It is 10%. But understand that his giving a tithe is not the same as Old Testament tithing, which was a form of taxation funding the national economy of ancient Israel. Now, those of us that are from more traditional churches, I was raised in a more traditional congregation, then this next statement might sound shocking. But the New Testament does not, does not, contain any commands for specified amounts or percentages of giving. It isn't there. Most evangelical congregations teach we are to tithe. My father taught me to tithe, meaning we are commanded to contribute one-tenth of our income to the church. Now, this is not a major doctrine. This is not an essential tenet of the Christian faith. So this is something we can agree agreeably to disagree on, and it's, it's okay. We, we can do that. Um, Dave Ramsey teaches tithing, uh, and that's fine. He's not a strict legalist about it, but he does. Uh, but I do not teach that people must tithe. I don't tell them that God expects 10 for 10% from us, and if we don't give him that full 10%, then it's disobedience and a sin on our part. I don't teach that. The New Testament doesn't teach tithing in the same sense as the Old Testament does. Tithing isn't mentioned once in the New Testament church epistles. The epistles are messages, letters to the different churches. 
in the New Testament. The only time tithing is mentioned in the New Testament is in a reference to Jewish people in an Old Testament context. There is not a chapter and a verse in the entire New Testament that specifically states that a Christian is to tithe. Tithing in the Old Testament was a form of ancient taxation. Don't miss that. Tithing was a form of ancient taxation. Ancient Israel had a unique form of government that was unlike any other form of government that has ever existed. Let me explain. The United States is not a democracy. There are people in the media all the time who tell us that we are a democracy. Those people are mistaken. Instead, we are a constitutional republic. We should remember that from the Pledge of Allegiance. A republic is a form of government where the people hold power, but we elect representatives from among ourselves to exercise that power. But ancient Israel wasn't a democracy. It wasn't a republic. Ancient Israel was actually a theocracy. A theocracy was a political state that existed because God himself governed that nation through different vice regents such as kings and judges. In order to support this ancient theocratic government, God required from the Jewish people three basic tithes. Notice first the temple tithe. Those monies and goods supported those men that served in the temple. And the references are mentioned there. Second, the festival tithe. That tithe supported the national Jewish holidays, holy days, and festivals. Uh, and third, the benevolence tithe. The benevolence tithe was sort of a, a welfare tithe, a, um, you know, a tithe for the poor. So these were the three basic Old Testament tithes. The temple and festival tithes were extracted from the people on an ongoing annual basis. And the benevolence tithe, meaning the monies that were used for the poor, were taken each third year. So that meant that altogether this required tithing constituted 23 and one-third percent of someone's annual increase or income. Those tithes were a form of taxation that were used to support the theocratic government of ancient Israel. Now we cover this in a more comprehensive sense in our uh, Discipleship Essentials course but that's an overview. But people, ancient theocratic Israel doesn't now exist. The modern state of Israel is a secular state. And besides, we are a spiritual organism called the church. So contrary to what most evangelicals teach, the New Testament doesn't require us to contribute a legalistic, specific percentage of our income. But instead, it teaches a principle a principle that permits us as individuals to personally determine what percentage and amount of our income we should give. That principle is called proportionate giving. That principle is stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and means the amount of an individual's gift is to be in proportion to how God has prospered him. This means someone's gift is connected to how God is blessing us. As God gives us more, then we should be able to increase what we give back to Him in both amount and percentage. Notice the definition. The principle of proportionate giving states that the amount of a person's gift is to be proportionate to how God has prospered him. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. 
Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. Verse 2, on the first day of the week, Sunday, let each one of you lay something aside, meaning set some money aside so you have something to give, storing up, meaning setting some money aside to give, allowing that money to accumulate, as he may prosper, that there may be no collection when I come. Let me set up the historical context. Because of severe religious persecution, the Christians at the first century Jerusalem church have been forced into serious, serious poverty. In order to provide them some financial relief, Paul had been collecting monies from other congregations to give to them, to assist them to help them. So Paul was instructing the Corinthian church to prepare to also give to that cause. So Paul asked these Corinthians to contribute some money each Sunday designated for the quote Jerusalem Relief Fund. So that this money that had been accumulating would be waiting for him once he got to Corinth and so he wouldn't have to take up another special offering and raise more money. Please notice Paul has asked them as individuals to give in direct proportion to how God has prospered them. The New Testament teaches proportionate giving, but that proportionate giving principle was incorporated into the church not to lower the financial expectations God has from us, but to actually increase them. There are Christians who are stuck in this tithe rut and they will tithe and that's it. It doesn't matter how much God blesses them. God's not going to get any more than 10%. I don't endorse what is called prosperity theology. Prosperity theology basically teaches that God wants us rich. That is not a biblical teaching. Positive confession preachers teach it is a sin to be poor. And we're poor because we don't have enough faith in God for Him to bless us in riches. That's heretical. I do believe, though, that God wants to prosper His children. I believe God wants to bless us in multiple dimensions. He wants to bless us in a spiritual sense, in a relational sense, in a health and wellness sense, in a professional sense, our career in a marital sense, our marriages, and on and on. And if God blesses us in a financial sense, meaning He blesses us in terms of dollars and cents, and stocks and bonds and investments, then as the amount of someone's income increases, as the amount of someone's profit increases, this principle teaches that the percentage and amount of that person's giving should also increase. Our giving ought to be connected to how God is blessing us and prospering us so that as God gives us more, we should be able to give more back to Him. Now don't miss this. This principle also functions in reverse. If someone's income decreases, meaning the amount God has blessed them has been reduced, then God would expect the amount that person contributes also to decrease. Example, if a household goes from two incomes to one income because mom is at home and there are children at home and so she's at home and she's no longer employed outside the home, then God would not expect that household to give as much as they were able to give when they had two incomes instead of one. That is the principle of proportionate giving. 
That means someone's giving might fluctuate from time to time contingent on their particular financial situation. Again, God does not expect a strict tithe from us, but instead God expects us to give to Him an amount that is in proportion to how He has blessed and prospered us. And it's up to us to determine what that amount is. Now, unless someone has been raised in church, and and I was, I've been in church since um, three weeks of age. I mean, consistently, that entire time. If someone has been raised in church, this is not so difficult to understand. But most people, especially those not having been raised in church, are not accustomed to giving a systematic, significant percentage of their income to God. Sometimes people come to faith in Jesus with a bunch of financial baggage called debt. People, debt is bad. Uh, we, we are blessed that the only debt we have is a mortgage, and um, it's a very manageable, manageable mortgage. In fact, we just refinance. But uh, we could sell our home tomorrow for uh, three times what we owe on it. And so we're blessed. We don't have a lot of debt. Ultimately hope to be mortgage-free. But most people have debt. And contingent on someone's individual financial circumstances, I don't encourage a beginning Christian to start giving at a double-digit percentage amount. Most infantile Christians, beginning Christians, don't have the faith to give that percentage and then trust God to meet their financial needs. Actually, that idea pretty much terrifies them. They, they can't handle that. So I suggest to people that have never practiced the discipline of giving to start at a smaller percentage. Start at 3%, 4%, 5%. I think if someone gives 3%, 4%, 5%, and does it consistently, then God is going to bless them, as long as they don't mismanage the rest of their monies then God will bless them. And as God blesses them, their faith is going to increase. And as that faith increases, then we, so should the percentage of their giving increase to 6%, 8%, and then to that mathematical 10%. And if God continues to bless them, that rate ought to be 12%, 15%, because it should be in direct proportion to just how God has prospered them. My father, because he preached tithing to me, he told me that a dime out of every dollar was God's, and that's what I would give. But I haven't just given a 10% since childhood, because God has blessed us so much. That's in the distant past. I think the exact amount of what we give should be thought through carefully and prayerfully, and if married, then mutually agreed on. And then after we determine the percentage or amount, we ought to do it consistently. Consistently. Now, we missed a Sunday we were to give. So what are we doing? We're to give, scheduled to give this morning. So we'll give this morning that amount and the amount we missed while we are away. Because that's consistent giving. An outstanding example of this proportionate giving principle is uh, Rick Warren. Rick is the founding pastor at Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California. He has just announced his retirement after being there some four-plus decades. Um, I do not endorse all that Pastor Warren has said uh, or taught or done, but he has some extremely admirable 
personal qualities. Rick authored the best-selling book called The Purpose Driven Life. Some of us have read that book, Purpose Driven Life. That book was on the New York Times bestseller list for 90 consecutive weeks. And to date has sold 50 million copies that are translated into 85 languages. And it continues to sell. As a result of that purpose-driven life, extraordinarily reception, and none of them anticipated this, Rick made more money than he could have ever imagined. It, it overwhelmed him. And because of the biblical principle we just read, that to whom much is given, much is now required, Rick and his wife Kay sat down together and discussed what to do with this unexpected windfall. And together made five strategic decisions. First, he would no longer accept, from that moment on, no longer accept compensation from Saddleback Church. So from that date until now, he has continued to be employed there as senior pastor, but he has not been remunerated for his services. Second, he calculated, he had his business manager do this, calculated how much total compensation he had received as pastor since he started Saddleback Church in 1980. He had him determine the exact amount he had received from the church during that time. He added that all together and paid that amount back in full to the church in one lump sum. Third, he said he would not change his lifestyle. No bigger and more expensive house, no vacation house, no exotic and hyper-expensive vacations. Instead, he has gone to minister to AIDS victims and impoverished people in Asia and Africa. Four, he would start two nonprofit foundations. Fifth, he would practice reverse tithing, tithing in a mathematical sense, and that meant he would give 90% of his income to God and survive on just 10% for himself. Now, 10% of a whole bunch <laughs> is still okay. I'd rather have his 10% than all of mine. I mean, seriously. All of that was voluntarily. He did not have to do that. I, I don't know that God expected him to do that, but that says volumes about where his heart is. And it is such a stark contrast to all of these televangelists that have these incredible, exorbitant, lavish, and expensive lifestyles that I find revolting. God blesses us not to just raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. And the point is that God blesses us to be a blessing to others. Remember that. We are blessed to be a blessing. I'm going to illustrate the treasure principle in conclusion through commenting on two different men. In November 1922, Howard Carter made one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of all time. He found the burial tomb of the ancient Egyptian pharaoh Tutankhamun. Carter had been searching for that grave since 1917. He found the tomb in November 1922. But he wasn't able to actually enter the tomb for another three months. On February 17, 1923, just after 2 p.m., in front of 20 selected witnesses, the seal to the tomb was broken. And Carter entered the grave. 
King Tut, as he is most often called, was born in 1341 B.C. He was born from incestuous relations between his father and his father's sister. He died at age 19 after a short reign. He reigned about a decade. He assumed the throne at age 9. Some believe he died from a gangrene infection resulting from a fractured leg, but there are other theories. Uh, so no one is certain as to the exact cause of death. Tutankhamun's tomb is the only tomb out of 60 tombs in the Valley of the Pharaohs that was never looted. It was found completely intact as it had been for some 32 centuries. Archaeologist Carter entered the tomb and the first thing to capture his attention was the immense amount of gold. There were literally hundreds of pounds of gold found in that tomb. Notice that is the most famous artifact from that find. That is the burial mask for Tutankhamun. Then that's, uh, next slide is more gold. Look at, and then the gold chair. That's insane. These are gold flip-flops. <laughs> Probably called sandals, but. This pharaoh was elaborately dressed for a long journey and perfumed with spices and surrounded with flowers, food and wine. His body was wrapped in gold tissue and he wore gold collars. Over his head, as we have just seen, he wore a mask of red and white gold and blue glazed earthenware. He was actually buried inside three different coffins, one inside another. The innermost coffin was made from solid gold. And the two outer coffins consisted of wood overlaid with hammered gold. And altogether, the entire coffin configuration weighed almost 2,900 pounds. This tomb also contained furniture, a chariot, statuary, clothes, weapons, and altogether 5,398 individual items, including such bizarre things as a crystal embellished coffinet. A coffinet is a small, small coffin that held the Pharaoh's embalmed liver. Why? I don't know. There was so much valuable material inside that tomb, it required more than a decade of meticulous and painstaking effort to completely empty the tomb of Tutankhamun. The famous Tutankhamun exhibit has traveled to countless countries, but in a matter of months, I understand, all the artifacts are scheduled to be housed together on a permanent basis in the new Grand Egyptian Museum in Cairo, Egypt. Now, the tomb's artifacts have been insured for hundreds of millions of dollars. In fact, during the travels, uh, an insurance corporation called Mizra insured the artifacts, and it was just a portion of the artifacts for $900 million. But in a technical sense, it's priceless because it is irreplaceable. Now, notice this teenage pharaoh spent his abbreviated existence accumulating 
expensive treasures on earth consistent with the ancient Egyptian mistaken notion that someone could bring his treasures with him into the afterlife. But it didn't happen, did it? Because it never happens. But located not far from the soon-to-be-permanent Tutankhamun exhibit is the grave of someone else that most of us would not recognize. His name is William Borden. He was born in 1887 and died in 1913. Borden, not unlike Tutankhamun in this sense, was also a child of unusual privilege. He was already a millionaire at the time he graduated from a Chicago high school in 1904. This part might sound familiar because his last name was Borden, and as that name suggests, he was heir to the Borden Dairy Estate. His parents sent him on a trip around the world as a high school graduation present. During his journey after high school through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, he found an increasing burden to minister to the masses of hurting people. He wrote to his parents and said, I am going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. After that decision, he wrote two words in the back of his Bible. And those words were, no reserves. No reserves. Meaning he was going to the mission field alone, expecting no one else to assist him. Even if it were just he and God there, he was still going. In 1905, Borden arrived at Yale University as just one more freshman. But during his first semester, he started a movement that transformed that campus. This was before Yale became a totally secular institution. Most people aren't aware. Four of the eight Ivy League universities were founded as Christian institutions. One half of them. One of his friends described how this movement happened. He said, Bill and I began to pray together in the morning before breakfast. We had been meeting only a short time when a third student joined us, and soon after a fourth. The time was spent in prayer after a brief reading of Scripture. Bill's handling of Scripture was helpful. He would read to us from the Bible, explain to us what he had read, show us something that God had promised, and then proceed to claim that promise with assurance. Borden's group started other daily Bible and prayer groups that spread across the campus. It is said that at the end of his freshman year, 150 freshmen were meeting together on a regular basis in those small groups. Get this, by the time he was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's then 1,300 students were also meeting in such groups. Upon graduation from college, Borden then turned down some lucrative job offers and he wrote two more words in the back of his Bible. This time those words were, no retreats. No retreats, meaning he was going to the mission field. He was determined to go and no matter how difficult it would become there, he wouldn't retreat. He wouldn't go home to mother. He wouldn't. Borden went on to do graduate studies at Princeton Theological Seminary, and it was there that he signed what is called the Princeton Pledge. 
That document stated this personal commitment, quote, We the undersigned declare ourselves willing and desirous, God permitting, to go to the unevangelized portions of the world. Borden's personal call to foreign missions came to focus on Muslims in China. And from that career objective, he refused to budge. It was also at this time, he also refused to even purchase a car. And instead, he contributed hundreds of thousands of dollars from his inherited estate to missions, missionaries, and other mission causes. Once Borden finished his theological students' studies, he boarded a ship to China. But first, he stopped in Egypt so he could attend school to learn the Arabic language. But he was only there four months because he contracted spinal meningitis and died. But during his illness that lasted almost a month, and just before his death, he wrote two more words in the back of his Bible. No regrets. No regrets. No regretting about his giving, his inheritance to missions. No regret about the thousands of hours of theological studies preparing for a career in missions that he would never have. No regrets. He died at age 25, and at his death, the words in the back of his Bible read, no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. I understand that we can go to Egypt this morning and brush the dust off from Borden's grave marker and read the epitaph imprinted there that describes his personal sacrifices and his passion to reach the Muslim people. And then the inscription ends with this incredible phrase, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. These two different men, both sons of privilege, separated some 32 centuries apart, these men illustrate the treasure principle. We can't take it with us. That's too in common. But we can send it on ahead. That was William Borden. Let's bow our heads. Father, I hope... Uh, I hope no one is misjudging my heart, my motive for even doing this. I believe giving is a personal matter, and it's difficult for me to comment on that other than what you have said. I pray, though, that what you have said made sense and will have an indelible imprint on our thinking once we leave this place. I pray that we will put into action the instructions about proportionate giving not just to do what so many do, just let's give God 10% and we're good. No. God blesses us as He does. Help us to respond in blessing Him more and blessing others more. So God, I hope that this is um, going to make a difference. I pray it will. I just pray, God, that You will help us. We live in the last days. There's no question we are in the end times. God, we can't really afford to play games much anymore. We have to get serious now about the things of God. And I pray that we will. Thank you for these people who are so attentive to listen to your word. I pray you'll bless them for it. And thank you in Jesus' name.
Amen.